0: This morning's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, "'Pray that you may not enter into temptation.'" And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Thanks,
1: Zach. Hey, everybody. Uh, Welcome. Uh, Thanks for coming. Thanks for being a part of Christ Community Chapel. So glad that you're here. Welcome those of you over at our East Service here in the West Service. Those of you who are tuning in, welcome. Uh, This past January, we spent the month casting a vision for what we wanted our church to be like 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now, and we're calling that vision Reimagine. And we are so excited about what we feel like God wants to do in us and through us, and we want everyone here to be a part. And if you are tuning in online, you know, we have these classes called Reimagine Classes where you can find your place, and we want you to take that as well. So we have created a virtual class that you can sign up for, get on our website, and click the Next Steps button, and then sign up for our Reimagine Class. You will not want to miss this, I promise you. All right? Thanks. All right, this is uh, our series, a 10-week series that we are calling Come and See, It's the last 10 scenes of Jesus' life, according to the Gospel of Luke. And this week, we come to the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prays a famous prayer. I cannot possibly do this justice. The depth of what happens in the Garden, I cannot fathom just to look at Jesus in his holiness and his humility and his strength and his courage and his love is absolutely breathtaking. When we say, come and see, we are bidding you to come close enough to see the wonder and the beauty of this story we call the gospel. Blaise Pascal, the famous French mathematician and philosopher, said, tell the gospel in such a way That it makes good men wish it to be true, then show it to be true. That's what we want to do throughout this series. So if you are here and you are not yet a Christian, or if you are watching and you are not yet a Christian, we want to show the story of the gospel through these 10 scenes of Jesus in such a way that it will make you wish it to be true. That you will say to yourself, Oh, if there was a God who could love me like that, that would be wonderful. If if Jesus would really do that for me, how great would that be? And then we're going to show it to be true. That's our prayer. All right. Uh, In this scene, and like most scenes, there are two different ways to look at Jesus. You can see Jesus as a role model who does things that you need to imitate, that I need to imitate. But Jesus is also more than a role model. There is a power, a secret, almost a magic of looking at Jesus in a certain way that can actually change and transform you. This is the way Paul the Apostle describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All right, in this scene, It's not just Jesus who's in this scene. There are also the disciples. So I want to look at the disciples, and then I want to take a look at Jesus, and then I want to take a look at you and me. Right? The disciples, then Jesus, then you and me. First, let's look at the disciples. In this passage, in this scene, what the disciples do basically is fall asleep. Can I just say I love these guys? I mean, I really do. They give me hope. Right, Because it seems like when you read the Gospels, at every turn, they are screwing up. Right, They are just doing the exact wrong thing. Pastor Zach, when he kicked off our series last week, talked about how Jesus is in the upper room with the Last Supper. And he takes bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body broken for you. And he takes a cup and says, this cup is my blood poured out for you, knowing that. That within hours, every single disciple is going to betray, deny, and abandon him. Not a single one will come through for him. Here in the garden, Jesus is obviously under tremendous distress. Right? They've never seen him like this. And he goes to them and he asks them for the very first time in all the Gospels, Will you pray with me? Will you pray for me? And they promptly fall asleep. In the Gospel of Mark, it says that he goes back to them three times to wake them up. I want you to see that in your mind's eye. Jesus coming to them, they're asleep, and he he shakes them. says, hey, 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 listen, wake up. Can't you pray with me? Can't you pray for me? And the disciples go, yeah, you bet. And they go right back to sleep. How sleepy would you have to be? If I called you personally, And I said to you, I'm going through the worst time of my life. Will you pray with me? Will you pray for me? Don't you think you'd do that? But instead they fall asleep. But it gives me hope because I feel like I couldn't have done any worse than that. Right? You couldn't have done any worse than that. And still Jesus loves them. Which means that when I fail, Jesus still loves me. And when you fail, Jesus still loves loves you. But when I looked at this passage, for the first time this week, I saw something that I hadn't seen before. It kind of gives a a reason why the disciples were sleeping. It's in uh, verse 45. It says, and when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. They were sleeping for sorrow, it says which means they weren't sleeping because they ate a really heavy meal or because they were lazy. They were sleeping because their hearts were breaking. And the question is, why? Well, they had pinned all their hopes on Jesus, and they were seeing things just come apart at the seams. It started with Palm Sunday, that Sunday. They had begged Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem. Your enemies hate you too much. They're too powerful. They will kill you. And Jesus not only goes to Jerusalem, he goes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's like he's pushing his enemies into a corner and saying, crown me or kill me, but you must deal with me. And the disciples know in their heart of hearts that his enemies will never crown him. And in the upper room, instead of talking about his reigning on a throne, he's talking about himself dying on a cross. And then here in the garden, he is coming undone. They have never seen Jesus distressed, despondent like this, and the energy just drains out of them. But of course, Jesus is under much more pressure. Jesus is much sadder than the disciples. But instead of escaping, Jesus goes to God in prayer. And this is Jesus as a role model. Jesus is inviting the disciples, don't fall into temptation. Don't run away from God when you're disappointed, when you're distressed, when you're overwhelmed. Come with me. Watch me. Come pray with me. Go to God. I don't know if you've ever felt that, where you have felt so discouraged, so disappointed, even with God, and you can't figure out why God is allowing certain things into your life. And the last thing you want to do is pray. That's when Jesus says, Watch me, pray with me, right? Jesus as a role model. This, this last week I had kind of an epiphany of sorts. I'm a person of absolute routine. I do the same thing every morning. I wake up in the morning, go downstairs, turn on the coffee maker, check my phone, right? And I check my phone before I go to my chair with my lamp and I have my time with God. And this particular morning, uh, last week, I picked up my phone, turned on the coffee, picked up my phone, and there was an email from someone who was leaving our church, and they were explaining their reasons for leaving, and I was front and center for all the reasons for leaving. And I don't know if you have read emails like that. You probably have, uh, where it just feels like, um, like a plug is pulled out of you, like, a, like a, a bathtub where all the water just drains out. And I was looking at my phone, just going, oh man, but because I was studying for this passage, I waited for the coffee to be done, poured myself a cup of coffee, went to my chair, and brought my phone. <laughs> and I said to God, God, here's the email I got. This is either going to bounce around in my soul. It's either going to make me more like you or less like you. Help me, help it make it more like you. More like Jesus, right? I did that because Jesus bid me to. Jesus said, follow me. And as a role model, I watched what Jesus did when he was discouraged and he went to God in prayer. But for God to really do what I asked him to do, to, to use that email, to make me more like Jesus, to actually transform me, I needed what Jesus ended up doing in the garden. And that brings me from the disciples to Jesus. This is um, a book called The Book of Martyrs. It has story after story of men and women who are followers of Jesus who were put to death for their faith. And they could have avoided death had they just recanted their faith, but they didn't. And it's an amazing story. One of my favorite stories is of two friends, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, and they were both condemned to die, and they were given the opportunity to recant, and they could go free, and they said, no, we will not recant Jesus And so they were going to die by being burned at the stake. This happened actually in Oxford, England. I've been to the spot where this happened. And so they were lashed to the stake and the wood was piled up around them. But before they put the torch to the wood, Hugh Latimer says to Nicholas Ridley, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. For I trust that we shall light such a candle by God's grace in England that it shall never go out. Can you imagine having that kind of courage where they're about to light you up and you just say, I'm going to be like a candle. This is going to be awesome. Right? Now, what's interesting is that scholars have always been intrigued about how Jesus approached his death. That Jesus didn't approach his death with that kind of courage. Or so. And you would think, out of all the people that Jesus would, that if you threatened Jesus with death, he would just laugh and go, okay, give it a rip. See what happens. I, I think that Jesus would be like that, you know, like an inflatable clown with the heavy bottom that you punch, and they pop back up. Like Jesus would go, go ahead, do it. Back up, you know. Because he had already shown that he had power over death. But that's not Jesus. Jesus is just undone. Jesus is a wreck in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the question is, why? Well, the answer seems to be in verse 42, where it says, Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus says, Father, remove, it's a plea, remove this cup from me. Of course, the question is, what is that cup? In the Old Testament, the Old Testament talks about a cup of God's wrath. It's talked about in Ezekiel, in Isaiah, and this is what it says in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17. Isaiah says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. What the Old Testament says is that there's a cup of God's wrath, and if you taste it, you will stagger. Okay, two quick questions that I want to try to answer. One is, why does God have wrath? And number two, why why do Jesus' knees buckle when he thinks of drinking God's wrath? First, why does God have wrath? A lot of people have trouble with God having wrath. A lot of people are saying, well, why, why does God have to have wrath? Why can't God just be loving? I mean, God should love everybody. That's what my God is like. But then you really don't understand love or wrath. Because wrath in God is a, a righteous anger, a, a holy kind of fury, and it's always connected to his love. And that's the problem is, as, as human beings, are anger or wrath is not always connected to love, but it is sometimes. It is sometimes. So we should be able to understand it. And When I say that, there are plenty of movies that connect love to wrath. There's a popular movie out called John Wick. All right, I am not recommending this movie. It's about a 90-minute movie. I think probably 85 minutes is all just wrath, just uh, John Wick killing people. I was channel surfing Not too long ago, we came across that movie and my wife Karen was sitting next to me and she was going, hey, does that guy die? I was going, yeah, everybody dies. Everybody everybody you see is going to die except for John Wick. And the question is, how does a movie producer get normal people, because it's a very popular movie, watch 85 minutes of just abject violence? This is how. The first five minutes, this is what you learn. That John Wick was an assassin who left being a professional assassin because of the love that he had for a woman. He married this woman, and he adored his wife. And in the first five minutes of the movie, you find out that his wife dies of cancer. And John Wick, is, he's played by Keanu Reeves, and he's you know, grieving, and then there's a knock on his door just a couple days after his wife dies, and there's a delivery, and the delivery is a puppy. A puppy with a, a note, and the note is from his deceased wife who says, listen, John, I wanted you to have this, Someone to love, someone to remember me by, someone to care for you so you're not so lonely. Right? And Keanu Reeves is just sobbing, holding this puppy. Right? And then uh, a few weeks later, some bad guys break into his house. They beat him. They steal his car, but before they steal his car, as a bonus, in front of John Wick, they bludgeoned his puppy to death. Right? You feel that? (laughs) How does a movie producer get normal people to watch 85 minutes of violence? Wrath. Wrath. And if normal people can feel some wrath because of a puppy, how much more does a holy God feel about children who are being abused, or about racism, or about genocide, or about just character assassination on social media. Jesus is facing much more than physical death when he's looking at the cup. Now, this is something that you should know. is that there is a a consistent paradigm throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. It's the paradigm of substitutionary sacrifice, a substitute that will sacrifice instead of you. Right? Uh, Pastor Zach talked about it last week when he talked about the Passover. The Passover was a time where the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt and God is going to do one last plague and the plague was that in every household, the wrath of God was going to visit every household and the firstborn son in every home was going to die unless you took a lamb and you sacrificed the lamb instead. And then you took the blood of the lamb and you put it on your house and then the wrath of God would pass over your house. But at the end of the night, In every house, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. That's substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus says, Father, if it is possible, remove this cup from me. What Jesus is saying is this. Everybody's got a cup. You have a cup. I have a cup. And every time that I have hurt someone God loves, I've put drops into the cup, my cup of God's wrath. And every time you have said something about someone that is untrue or that is true and in bad, I mean, where you are putting them in a bad light, every time that you have sinned against God, every time you have disobeyed him, every time you have passed up doing good, you put wrath in your cup. And this is the truth. Someone has to drink your cup. It's either going to be you or it's going to be Jesus. And when Jesus is in the garden, that's why there's wrath. But the thing that makes his knees buckle is this, that sin, even in the smallest degree, begins to isolate you. You tell a small lie, and what happens is that goes up like a thin wall between you and other people. And you begin to be isolated, to be alone. You know, you might have heard the old adage from Alcoholics Anonymous, that you're only as sick as your secrets. I think there's another adage that people should know, and that's you're only as lonely as your sin. And what happens with Jesus is that he begins to feel in the garden what it would feel like to be alone. When Jesus prays this prayer, he starts out by saying, Father, that's really... Uh, even a more diminutive word. It's more like dad. And Jesus is the first one to ever say that to God, by the way. No first century Jew would ever have dared to call Yahweh dad. But Jesus does because he is so close, so intimate with God the Father. And he says, dad, but he's already beginning to feel what it would feel like to be separated. In the gospel of Mark, it actually says that Jesus is under is greatly distressed. In the Old King James, it says that he was sore amazed in the garden. What happened? What would make Jesus amazed? And what would make him amazed is this: for the very first time, he was feeling what it would feel like to be separated from the love of God the Father. To not feel that, and it made him a wreck. Right? That's what. Jesus does. It's, a, it's almost like God holds out the cup to let Jesus smell it, to let Jesus gag on it. And if that seems cruel, then let me ask you this. Have you ever sat with somebody that you loved while they suffered? How did you feel? Well, the answer is that you suffered too. When God the Father is holding out the cup, his, the cup of his wrath to his Son— he is suffering as well. But he's telling Jesus this. Jesus, someone needs to drink this cup. If you don't drink it, then they will have to. And they will be shattered. But if you drink it, you will experience what is unimaginable, what no one else will experience. And Jesus, when he says, not my will, but your yours be done, what Jesus is saying is this, as you wish. We will do this. I will... Drink the cup so that through me, they can be restored. So through me, they can feel what I have felt from eternity past. But in order to do that, I will stop feeling that love. I will stop feeling your delight. While the disciples slept, Jesus battled alone. And that brings me to the last point, which is you and me. You and me, this is where Jesus becomes more than a role model. Jesus' role model shows us when we are discouraged, when you are down, when you are uh, disappointed, even in God, you go to God in prayer. But if you are ever going to be really transformed, if I am ever really going to change, this is how it happens because of what Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because the Garden of Gethsemane is like the the polar opposite of the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, God goes to Adam and Eve, and he says, Obey me, and you will have abundant life. Obey me, and you will receive every one of my blessings. In the Garden of Gethsemane, God goes to Jesus, and he says, Obey me, and you will experience death. Obey me, and instead of blessings, you get cursed. Jesus is the only one God ever says that to. What he says to Jesus is this. Jesus begins to pray, and he gets silence, so that when you pray, you are heard. Jesus begins to feel the face of God turn away from him, so that you can have the face of God turn toward you. Jesus obeys and gets hell so that you can get heaven. Back to my, my email. So this, I uh, follow Jesus as a role model by taking my phone to my chair and saying to God, I'm going to pray about this instead of letting it bounce around in me and I try to deal with it another way. But the way God really changed me is this, that when I took it to him in prayer, he heard me. And he heard me because of what happened in the garden, because Jesus switched places with me and Jesus was met with silence so that God would hear me. And then God says this to me, Oh, Joe, don't you realize that my son drank your cup of my wrath? Don't you realize what that means? Bring that little paper cut that that email caused you and I will pour out a cascade of my love upon you and remind you again and again and again that your worth is not determined by what people think of you. Your worth is determined by whose you are and you are mine. Do you know that? That's what Jesus does in the garden. Listen, whatever is going on in your life, And this is what I want you to do. If you are discouraged, if you are confused, whatever, follow Jesus as a role model. Go to God in prayer. But if you ever really want to change, you have to realize that what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane changes everything. Because the moment that Jesus decided to say, not my will, but yours be done, what he was saying is, I will be their sacrifice. I will be their substitute. So that what happens to me, what, what should have happened to them will happen to me. And what I enjoy, they will enjoy. So what I felt in the, you know, there's a benediction that I, in the Old Testament that I used to use all the time when I would close a sermon. And it's uh, Aaron's benediction where he says, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. And really that phrase means may, the, may God's face light up. When he sees you, that's what happened in my chair. You want to be changed. Let this truth go so deep in you that when you experience pain or hurt or things that will throw you off, that you go to God and let him remind you what Jesus did in the garden changes everything. Because in 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, God made him, made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I come to you and I look at what you did in the garden and it, is, uh, it really is breathtaking. Not just your holiness and humility and courage and strength and love, But you decided there that that battle was fought and won when you decided that you would drink this cup, the cup that that I have made that I should drink, that we should drink. Instead, you took it. And because you drank that cup, because you were absolutely alone, because you experienced the curse, we can experience life and blessing. I pray that every person here would experience what it feels like to have the love of God flood into us to heal us, change us, transform us to be more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.